0: I'm the Reverend Dr. Jenny McKay, veterinarian, curate, and minister in secular employment, environmentalist, activist and self-confessed cat junkie. But believe it or not, I've never been blocked by Jeremy Clarkson on Twitter. Someone who has is my guest, Dominic Dyer. So, Dominic, I'm sure many, including myself, would say that was a badge of honour. But what did you do to upset Mr Clarkson? Well, you know,
1: we've had a few run-ins over the years about his attitudes towards wildlife, uh, badgers and foxes and other wild animals. Um, he's made some quite horrible statements, in my view, on his recent farming programme, On This and Prime, which is, you know, breaking all viewing records. Over 4 million people have seen a recent episode, I think, or a few episodes. Um and I was truly troubled by what he was saying, as have many people in this local badger group in Oxfordshire that I work closely with. And obviously, you know, in, in the broader wildlife protection movement, um, he's been demonizing badgers, you know, saying horrific things about these animals, putting them in a very sort of human sense, calling them evil and dangerous and vicious and making excuses for people that go around killing them. And, you know, I've worked as chief executive of the Badger Trust for seven years, wrote a book on the badger cult called Badger to Death. So I'm very familiar with this demonization of badgers within the farming industry. And I think there's a real danger that this man has become a, a significant champion for the farming industry, a very difficult time for farming in this country um, for all the wrong reasons, really. I think he's, he's hugely controversial for his comments, but I don't underestimate his influence or his ability to make entertaining television. So it's important, I think, that you know, people like me do question him and call him out on it, which I did, which he didn't like, to be quite frank. Uh, This was actually a few months before this television program went out because he was making various statements in the Sunday Times, which I basically took him up on. But he's obviously, you know, hammered down on those effectively in in the program as well. So we are going to be writing to Amazon Prize Chief Executive and to Minette Batters, the uh, head of the National Farmers Union, because uh, they made Jeremy Clarkson their National Farmers champion in 2021. And I think that comes with some responsibility. So I'm going to ask her as to whether she condones these comments or not. And I would like to see her at least come out and say, no, we don't accept what he's saying in this instance, even though I think she'll probably, you know, not respond at all or claim that actually she's not in any way responsible for what he says. But, you know, yes, that's why he blocked me. I think I did draw attention to it. I did embarrass him about it, saying what he was saying was effectively condoning illegal activity. And um, he <laughs> did take the public step of blocking me. Uh, so we've not had any discussion since. And that's where we are.
0: Well, at least it highlights, it doesn't it for you know for many other people to get on board as well and yeah, to challenge you know the, that viewpoint. The,
1: the, the danger is and the saddest thing about Jeremy Clarkson is that so many farmers do believe in what he says, and they've come to me saying he's actually saying that yeah. you know something that many of us are scared to say about the way people like you have idolised these animals that have caused such problems. I think the worst thing Clarkson said was that he believed that badgers were the, the prime cause of farmer suicide. Uh, which has come up now and again in the debates about badger culling. And I think that is completely ridiculous a comment to make. We know that suicide is, yes. you know, a big, big problem in the farming industry. And there are many factors behind that. And I wouldn't say that bovine TB is not one of them. It is, but it's one of many mm. that can drive people to take yes. their lives. But to blame it on one animal, <laughs> which to be fair, there's little evidence to show that yeah. it is actually a major vector of yes. disease for to cattle. Most of it is cattle to cattle anyway. Um, it's absolutely ridiculous. And so what it does, it reinforces that prejudice that leads to such persecution of this poor animal as well.
0: Well, well done for speaking absolutely. on that. But you started your work, didn't you, as a civil servant for the Ministry of Agriculture, Fisheries and Food? Can you tell us a little bit about your career now as a wildlife protection campaign or environmentalist writer? Yeah, I country? suppose, you know,
1: I was fortunate. I ended up in the Ministry of Agriculture. I was one of these people that went into the civil service at the age of 16 without much in the way of qualifications after leaving school. Um, I started working on a building site for a while. I didn't like being outside. So I said to my parents, I wanted to get a job in in an office. So I, I, I applied for what was called the Civil Service Commission in those <laughs> days. where you sort of applied for a job, and you didn't know what department you were going to get. I went along, did well in the interview. They said they were going to appoint me as an admin assistant, a junior admin, a clerk, effectively. Um, and I could have ended up in Social Security or you know, Department of Health and never be seen again. But actually, they sent me to the Ministry of Agriculture just by chance. And the first department I worked in was our legal department. And the first thing I did was going with um, lawyers from, uh, from math, as it was in those days, from the Ministry of Agriculture to court. And so one of the first cases was in Lincoln Crown Court. I remember it for a, a legal poisoning of a dog you know, by a, a farmer, a gamekeeper. Um, so from the very beginning, I saw a lot of what I'm involved with today. I was I was very much involved with in terms of working in Whitehall. I worked in agriculture, organic farming, trade policy, a lot of stuff in Europe as I, as I went on as well through my career in Whitehall. And then went to work in the food industry and got very involved in the sort of developments of plant-based foods. So in the early noughties, I worked in an organization called the Food and Drink Federation, helping them develop their vegetarian, vegan, functional food businesses and then trade groups working with the likes of Linda McCartney Foods, Cauldron, Alpro, uh, Corn, you know companies in those days that were relatively small developing businesses have now become much bigger, well-known brands. Of course, as that market has expanded rapidly. And then went is, to work yes. after eight years of the food industry into the plant science industry, which is much more controversial to a degree, but fascinating to learn about how plant science plays a big role in breeding of crops and, and how we develop various technologies to produce you know, agricultural crops for food production and for livestock feed and all the rest of it, working with Monsanto and Syngenta and big companies like BASF and and Bayer and traveling a lot and working in different parts of the world between Africa, Asia, Europe, and learning more about global food security and how all that connects together, you know, in terms of deforestation, how we grow soil, how we utilize the land, all the, 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 the pressures of trying to feed a rapidly growing population on this planet against the backdrop of climate change and deforestation and huge impact as we're having on, on, on biodiversity. All of that, I suppose, that experience in agriculture, food, plant science came together, which made me think more about the world and the environment. became a trustee of a charity called Careful Art International while I was head of the Crop Protection Association around 2009, 2010. And then in time went on, I decided really that, I gave, I wanted to give up a well paid lobbying corporate area of work to work in wildlife rather than just be a trustee to get more involved. So I actually gave up a well paid job to go and work for Care for the Wild on a staff basis to develop, firstly, their areas of work around bovine TB and badges, which led to what I went on to do. And also to deal with the growing concerns I had, having spent time in Africa about the poaching of elephants and ivory. I'd written a few pieces in the Sunday Times about, you know, what was happening on the ground, the need to, to bring more security elements and military expertise on the ground into Africa to take on the poachers and things, which created quite a lot of interest. So I, I sort of had a route into wildlife conservation that way. It was quite unique and different to many other people, but I brought a lot of skills and knowledge with me. as a good communicator, a good lobbyist, a good campaigner. But I took all those skills into the wildlife world, went on to become chief executive of the Badger Trust, worked with Born Free at the same time doing policy work, I now sit on the board of Wildlife Countryside Link which is like the NGO group for all the big wildlife conservation organisations. I sit on the board of the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons and Veterinary Nurses Council so I'm very involved in the debates about animal welfare and the veterinary industry as well. And I'm about to take on a new role as chair of Nature 2030 which is another sort of platform that originally Ben Fogel set up 100 years ago working with a a PR company called Higginson Strategy that I'm now going to take on as well. Mm -hmm. So I keep keep myself busy and I write and campaign and do lots of different Mm -hmm. things. But there is some logic to my career. All of what I learned through that period of time in government and in industry, I do apply to what I'm doing now. We're still talking about farming and agriculture, animal welfare, disease control, land use. (laughs) I get involved in a lot of those debates. And and so I, I suppose there's been a journey that I've been on from all of that beginning You know, when I I ended up in that job in the Ministry of Agriculture when I was 16 years old.
0: Yes, that's right. It it's evolved, and as you said, it's just got so many different arms to it that that builds into Mm. you know, of course, climate change, the big big issue today. Did you have any pets growing up? Yeah, rabbits, hamsters,
1: dogs. I was in a house where we always had companion animals, pets. It was an important part of my childhood. I loved All Creatures Great and Small, dreamed of being a vet, but never really had that academic background. I've I've, I've met and have friends who are vets. I have great, great um, pride in what they do and respect because I know how hard they've worked to become a vet. Often it's more difficult to become a vet than it might be to become a a medical doctor in terms of what you have to learn. Uh, And I think it's more difficult maybe dealing with animals because they can't tell you how they feel. So you're, you're having to find your way through that situation. But yeah, I would have loved to have been a vet. Uh, I haven't been a vet, but I, I work closely with the vet industry today, so I'm happy to be able to do that. I have many vets who I know and are friends with vets, so that, that's a wonderful thing. Ah,
0: so animals fantastic. Are important. And now no, you can add, you can add yeah, a exactly. reference yes, to, yes. to the, 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 the list as well. As well. <laughs> podcast, so
1: thank you so much for
0: having me too. Yeah, yeah, animals a so
1: um, But as I got older, oh, yeah. I suppose I got much more involved in the political debates about animals and about the emotional connection we have with them and then taking on governments and industry and businesses about protecting them so okay. i've become in some ways a controversial figure because i've stood up for animals and, and become the voice for the voice It's a phrase i often use but to me that's important the older i get the more passionate i feel about the need to do that
0: okay so can you tell me a little bit about your role as an advisor to power of Ooh. one how you first became involved in that. And maybe for for some people who don't know, what is Power of One? Yeah, well, Power of One was a
1: project that um, a lawyer called Samantha Hutchison who works in the city came up with. And I only met Samantha in the early part of last year. She was introduced to me by a friend. And I've always been interested in uh, animal rescue work. I'd spent time in Romania and have worked with a lot of different charities rescuing dogs from the streets of Central Eastern Europe and other countries and then trying to rehome them here. And when I met Samantha, she told me, well, I've been funding quite a lot of these organizations. You know, she's fortunate. She's very well paid in what she does, I'm very, very good at what she does. And I've been giving them money and a sort of, you know, people that have introduced me and I'm supporting them. But I actually want to set up a an organization of my own that can really begin to get money into a large number of small animal welfare charities. Maybe not the bigger ones, but the ones that are often women, you know, doing in ter- terribly difficult work in countries like Turkey or, um, you know, Sri Lanka or Egypt, these are the sort of countries that she's been supporting organizations in. And uh, I was really taken by that. And I thought, this is really something I want to do. And she had this big event going on in London. She had Leona Lewis flying over America to sing at it and, and spent an awful lot of money and time putting it together. And she asked me, will you come and speak? And I, I said, yes, I would. And when we sort of planned this, you know, the Ukraine war had broken out. And there was this huge rush of people coming out of Ukraine with their companion animals. Uh, So I thought that actually what we could do is try and draw attention to that issue on the night. And we brought a number of charities together who were active in Ukraine, helping people and animals, which we brought onto the stage. And I spoke about the importance of what was happening around this terrible conflict. We produced a little film. I think it was very moving. The audience, you know, which a lot of city bankers and people like that were really very taken by some of what I said on that night about that connection between people and animals. And also it come on the back of an the now animal rescue project I've been involved with in Afghanistan that had become a, a big political scandal and problem. Um, but also it was something very much fresh in people's minds. So I brought all of that together on the night. So I think what Samantha's doing is really important and I continue to support and work with her. We're going to be at a celebrity boxing match that she supports. Her. A boxer called Jack mm-hmm. McGann that's mm-hmm. going to fight on Friday with that. To Tom Hardy's going to be there as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know she's sort of involved in doing these things that are helping raise money and support for the for the organisations she's giving support to. And it, a lot of it is to do with women empowerment as well. So we're not just talking about animals; we're talking about human rights. A lot of the countries that people are operating in, it's difficult for women to be independent and strong and to take on governments or local authorities. But many of them are doing that to protect animals, which I think is really important mm-hmm. work. Yeah,
0: absolutely. I think just when you were talking about Ukraine, it was such a touching image, wasn't it? People running with their their cat cages and and their dogs they they didn't want to leave them behind. I don't think I'd ever seen anything quite like no, that. No, I think it was
1: a conflict that brought that uh, to everyone's attention. I think if you knew a bit about Ukraine, you would know they had a, a significant companion animal you know side of their lives that that was something. The way the country had a a large number of animals in private ownership, significant growing animal welfare industry, that's the word to use. Um, And I think they were very special to people and when this terrible conflict broke out, they were not going to leave them behind. And I think that might have sort of caught many people by surprise, but I think it shows how important these animals are and what people will do and how much risk they will take to get them out and to save them. And one of the things I had to do was to lobby the British government to allow the refugees to bring those animals in with them. Initially, the British government's view was, well, we have very strict quarantine rules. We don't have enough kennel facilities. We have to put them in quarantine for three months. We can't do that. But we took it all the way up to the prime minister. who already promised Zelensky that he was going to get people out. So on that basis, we just brought it all together and put pressure on the government. And what they managed to do then was to ensure that they could reduce the, the, the quarantine time down. They could microchip the animals, they could inject the animals against rabies that they weren't injected against and allow home quarantine as well. And under that scheme now, they pay for that. Over 2,000 refugees have brought their animals in, which I think is a really good thing to see. Mm -hmm.
0: Brilliant, Mm. brilliant work. And of course, we know about all those, those horrors going on overseas, but in Britain itself, we are experiencing this terrible cost of of living crisis and you put together a petition for a cost of living animal welfare crisis fund to help uh desperate pet owners who can no longer afford to keep their pets can you tell me about any experiences you've had speaking with both pet owners and vets on the front line that made it clear that a petition was needed? Yeah, yeah this is
1: this is, a, this is a difficult area i think particularly for vets to speak out on, to be quite frank. Uh, You know, the petition has got a huge amount of interest in the media. You know, lots of journalists have written about it, uh, more than any petition I've been involved with, but it's actually crept up quite slowly. And part of the reason for that is because I think the big animal charities have all looked at it and gone, we're not quite certain as to whether we should get ourselves behind this or not. We know there's a crisis. We know what Dominic is saying is absolutely right, but we're not quite certain if there's a role for government or not. I think as time goes on, I think everyone's beginning to recognise, actually, there's a lot of common sense, as it were, in the position that we've taken. And I did consult and work with vets on some of the thoughts going into that petition about what we were asking for. Um, Do we have a crisis? Yes, we do. What are the, the, the proportions of that? I think are going to be huge if we don't get a grip on it. Um, we have a significant problem with over 14 million animal owners in this country. And I would say 40, 50 percent of them are beginning to struggle to maintain the health of their animals, to feed them, to get the vet bills pet insurance because of significant rising costs in the household budgets and everything else. And there's only way that one way that's going to go is you're going to find that many people are going to be in a situation and they're already seeing this. You can talk to vets. They are doing this. They are putting animals to sleep because people can't afford to keep them. And the charities that provide you know, backup facilities to house and rehome are completely flooded, so there's no spare capacity there. Um, and I think the government needs to sit up and do something, if only because all these millions of animals are a huge part of our economy, because you know, they basically ensure that vets have work, that pet food manufacturers have people to sell to, that pet insurance companies can insure. they're worth billions. Putting those animals to sleep is an animal welfare tragedy, but also an economic problem. So what I'm saying is let's just connect the dots and let the British Veterinary Association, the RSPCA, the Dogs Trust, let's all come together. Let's support giving more funding to organisations like Blue Cross, for example, PDSA, so they can expand the services they can provide. More pet food to go into food banks across the country. So every food bank has a pet food bank alongside it. More support for... Dogs on the streets and other charities trying to help the homeless, more support for local authorities that might have to deal with more strays as people let animals go, and that becomes a danger to the public on the highways, et cetera. More mental health support for the veterinary industry that are already hard-pressed because they're short of labour, as you know, that are going to have to continually put animals to sleep that are healthy, but there are no options to actually look after them anymore, Um, So, yes, I'm not giving up on it. I keep pressing it. And I'm pleased that journalists keep writing about it. And I was speaking about it in Parliament last week. We've got a debate at the Liberal Democrat conference coming off on animal welfare on the 18th of March at their conference in York. And I'll be talking about it there. Um, So we keep pressing. But what I do want to see, I I hope, is that the the charities and the veterinary industry do come together and accept that actually we need to be forcing the government to do something. Because I think if we we just think that we'll try and deal with it in our own little way, this crisis is going to get worse, not better.
0: Not going to, no. And and people bought so many pets. Absolutely. There were millions that came in. So
1: that's an additional problem on on top of the 10, 12 million, you've got another 3 million, whatever. The figures are astounding. They're large. Um, And, you know, if you went back to the Second World War, which I mentioned in the petition that, you know, over three quarters of a million animals were put to sleep in 1939 um, because the government basically said that we're not going to be able to feed them. So, you know, that was a huge cull of animals effectively. But we could see a similar figure of animals being put to sleep as a result of this crisis, as we saw in that period of time. So I think we've really got to wake up to that reality. Yes, yes. And
0: thank you for doing that. because a cool sign I'm a vet as well. No, and, you know, so you you know the
1: situation. And ultimately, as a vet, you have to take the best, you know, choice for the animal and its welfare. And if someone comes into you and says, listen, I can't afford to keep this, there's no for it to go. I know I saw a lady on television a few weeks ago, she's doing a lot of interviews as a vet, and she's taken in 14 dogs herself. Which is amazing and incredible, yes, okay. but you know, realistically, yeah. most people won't do that. No, we you can't, can't keep you can't doing that. Keep no, no. they've got to no. go somewhere, uh, and, and and that's that's no. the problem that we face at the moment.
0: Shifting topic slightly, uh, moving on to the, the topic of fox hunting, which, of course, is an increasingly politically toxic activity. That's what you said, wasn't it? Increasingly politically toxic activity, which should be consigned to the history books. Why do you think that cons- successive conservative governments have been so reluctant? Yeah, to I spend? talked about this at the All party it's animal welfare in Parliament
1: this week, and um, I said that I put the blame firmly on the government's door because ultimately... Um, and I did have this discussion with Zach goldsmith and people around Boris Johnson in 2019 when they were developing a manifesto for the election. They came to me and others and said, listen, what can we do on the hunting act? And I said, you can do this on the hunting act. You can basically enforce it, shut the loopholes, stop trail hunting, stop the use of terrier men, stop the use of various derogations that allow snag hunting. Uh, and then you basically will have the of legislation which has massive public support being enforced properly, and that will relieve the pressure on the police and stop wildlife and that's something all of us should want to see and it will you know, ensure that we don't have hounds running across roads and well-aligned and all the rest of it. Didn't do it. They didn't do it because various interest groups in the countryside alliance had influence within the Conservative Party, et cetera. And now you can see the results. We have packs of hounds out of control. Um, you have you know, huntsmen throwing hounds, to, you know, to, uh, foxes to the hounds as we saw Dave and the Vale hunt. You saw the Norfolk um, hunt video footage uh, with the, the chasing down the fox in the yard on television last week. And then across it is absolutely constant and it's, it, it's it is so now toxic but and and Rupert Evelyn at ITN News has been doing an amazing job. You know, he's been on this constantly getting it on primetime television. So I'd agree that I think it's almost becoming untenable for these hunts to continue now. Um, so yes, it's toxic, but it needs to end. We have Labour as a government waiting. There's no question about that, looking at where the polls are going. But they've got to finish the job they started in 2004. So we're saying to them, it's one thing that's condemning the Conservative government for allowing this to happen. But what are you actually going to do to bring it to an end? How can you come in in the first 100 days is what we'd like to see and ensure that legislation mm-hmm. is hammered down and enforced properly yes. and we stop it? There should be no packs of foxhounds anywhere in the country. If you're going to have dogs chasing a scent, you can use bloodhounds. And they can chase Um, chase a a trail and they will never chase down a fox and kill it because it's not what they do. It's the dogs they are using and the way they're using them as packs that allows the continual killing of wildlife. And it's those dogs that are out of control that are dangerous to people's homes and gardens and pets and on the highway and railway lines. So all of this comes down to the use of fox sounds in the way that they're used at the moment.
0: And what would you say to the people who say, well, what are we going to do with all those those hounds and, and the horses? Well, the horses, because I don't think, is a problem because they'll industry. be used and
1: ridden anyway, even though we know yeah. that, you know, let's be clear about what happens to many animals when they're no longer needed or wanted. Um, mm-hmm. In terms of the hounds, they have mm-hmm. appalling animal welfare. Um, very few of them get any veterinary intervention. We saw images the other day of a huntsman beating hounds, that happens all the time. Uh, they're shot, generally killed, you know, with bolt guns when they get wounded. And we've seen footage of that. Um, so, no, the, the, the life of a foxhound is not a happy one. Uh, they're not they're rehomeable not as pets. Yeah. To a large They're fed on more meat, but pack animals yeah. would be dangerous. So um, I think the actual yeah. keeping of hounds like that is not good for the animals. Mm-hmm. It's not good for the wildlife they're chasing down. Um, so I think the whole thing is a circle of, of cruelty, and I think it needs to end, to be quite frank. And I think the excuse being that, oh, yeah. we've got nowhere to put that out. Uh, I think the, the life of those animals is miserable. I just don't think, you, yeah, it's of course, good. you can have foxhounds as a breed, and that they can be perfectly good pets, but you don't keep them in these packs. Yes, they have to yes, start exactly. off
0: in the home, exactly. don't they? Yeah. So something else I was very interested in following was the successful evacuation of 173 <laughs> cats and dogs from Afghanistan after that country fell, sadly, to the Taliban in 2021. How did such an ambitious operation come to pass? I keep
1: asking myself that question because it never ends that story, really. <laughs> um, I think it was just a combination of factors, really. I think it was the fact that I knew Penn Farbner not very well. Um but I knew enough about him to, to want to try and help him. The fact that I had access to Carrie Johnson, because I'd campaigned to work with her, who obviously had the ear of her husband. I had a good relationship with Zach Goldsmith as a friend and colleague and someone I'd worked with in that government, I would say, who at the time I asked him for help, I didn't know that he was basically taking on responsibility for the Afghan area because his boss, Dominic Rab was on a beach in Crete and not taking any calls. Um, and I think, you know, maybe even to Ben Wallace, who got really angry and, and made a big issue of it, where it became a sort of who was controlling the government as to where we could get a plane on the runway into Kabul and get the animals and people out. Um, it sort of played out. I think to be fair, the, the documentary makers, Channel 4 that made Animal Airlift, uh, did an excellent job with it. And I worked really hard with them mm. to try and ensure that the whole political story came into, the, into into this piece. Because I think it was a story of bravery and compassion for Ben's side of things. It was a story of dirty politics and dealings in government. It was a story of how we managed to build this social media campaign at a moment when I think people were coming out of COVID and it came on the back of the uh, Geronimo, the alpaca story, which was also massive. So I, I did this two weeks yes. of this alpaca story That's that was front page in right. all the newspapers, went absolutely insane. And suddenly I went exactly from that into this campaigning for getting Penn and these people. Out. And I think it was a it was a crazy summer. It was a summer where we'd come out of COVID and we're beginning to try and come back to some type of normality. And suddenly we had this story of the alpaca that really caught people's imagination. And then suddenly we had this terrible situation in Afghanistan where the dogs did become a big issue, because I think a lot of people couldn't really see that they could do anything to help this terrible problem. But ultimately, what we were trying to do was get the vets, vet nurses and their families out. And when I would started, it was very much lobbying for that. We went to the RCDS and BVA. They both wrote to the Prime Minister to support what we were doing. It was all about the people. It was only when we had this American billionaire that came to us, uh, Spencer Haver in the US. You, I initially spoke to him, then got Pen on a, a Zoom call with him in New York. And like after half an hour, he sort of wired half a million pounds to us and said, "Listen, that's your money. Go and get the plane." And 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 it was only then that suddenly we thought we could do it. You know, we could actually get this aircraft onto the runway. And I think once that happened, that's when he pushed it really hard and the government had no choice but to see it through. But that's when the Defence Secretary sort of came out and said, I don't like this. I don't want this at all. Um, And as time went on, it, it became a bit of a sparring match between me and him and the media and all the problems that came about. But I think it became a political scandal only because Boris Johnson would not admit to what he did. He didn't admit that he got the visas for the staff and the families to get them out, which he did. He didn't admit that he overruled yes. Ben Wallace's attempt to try and prevent us putting an airplane on on the runway, which meant that he had to actually even authorize that plane to land and give us the authorization, which we got. And then ultimately, that when we couldn't get the people through the gate, that actually we could smuggle them to the border, and then actually Dominic Rabb foreign secretary facilitated them through into Pakistan and then back into Britain. They were the only group to come out, by the way, after that evacuation immediate period. So they were a unique oh, right. group of people right. Right. Uh, with that, that unique sort of pass of entry to the UK. Yes. But the great story is that those men, women, and children are now here safely, children in school and they'll have lives. The tragedy is that you know a lot of people were left behind and were never able to get out. And I went back to try and help some others with Mayhew charity that we tried to get out. We got them to Pakistan, but we've not been able to get them to, to Britain right. uh, because you know this government just don't want to take refugees, uh, and particularly when the Ukraine war came about, even less so with what happened in America. Um. So that 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 is, is 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 a sadder end to trying to help others. But I think the now sad story is mm-hmm. one of compassion, care, bravery, commitment, uh, political school duggery, mm-hmm. social media campaigning, the media, uh, all of it, which made it a fascinating story. Yeah. Uh, and I think it, it it taught me about how government works and how things can happen at certain times. But I sometimes step back and think it was still a a, a very crazy two weeks in August. Mm-hmm. But, um, you yeah, probably will never so, see anything alike yeah, of that what yet, you achieved. You know, no, I mean my social media in those two no, weeks reached we 80 not. million people, which is just crazy. <laughs> you know, I was doing like little another, videos from my kitchen up? that were reaching millions of people in that in a natural hour. So you could see that this was a back-to-back interviews on Good Morning Britain and Penn was doing lots of stuff from Afghanistan. All the media we were getting was huge. Yes. So I think we created this massive amount of momentum. But it did cause um a dilemma because ultimately Penn left. Afghanistan on a plane with lots of animals with no people because the people couldn't get through the gate. Uh, and that started this Pets Before yes. People argument that, you know, yes. it, it, was it was a it was a very good yeah. way of trying to undermine what we tried to do. Um, and so I think the documentary did get that across very well. And also it's, the Pets Before People yes. thing was turned on its head okay. by what we did with Ukraine, because it was pets and mm-hmm. people right? Ukraine. And, and, and so we yeah, went back right. and said, actually, you've got to bring these people in. So. Uh, that's The yeah. rest is for the history books, well done. really. Well done. Yeah.
0: well done. And, of course, there's always a new disaster coming along, isn't there? And and recently, in the last two weeks, we've seen the awful tragedy in Turkey with the earthquake. And I saw that you lost one of your uh, search dogs. Yeah, it wasn't you. mine. This is
1: a dog that w- was from a Mexican team, but I was drawing attention to it, and it became a big issue. I think that, to me, you okay. know, Turkey is a country I know well. I've travelled and um, been... In and out of Turkey over many years. Um, but I was always concerned about what we've seen in relation to street dogs in recent years, particularly in the last 12 months. Mm. Uh, laws were brought in for municipalities to round up dogs, bring them into kill shelters, and there's been some horrific slaughter and treatment of dogs. And there was a, 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 a case you know, a few months ago of a dog's being beaten with a spade over the head in, in the east of the country which went viral on social media. And some people like me were, were were very much part of that discussion. I was doing interviews on the media. And some of this was getting picked up back in Turkey. Uh, and this was becoming a big issue of concern. You know, on Christmas Day in Istanbul, 25,000 people came out to protest against cruelty to street dogs, a mm-hmm. lot of young women. In a country like Turkey, which is not a free society, increasingly authoritarian, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. this has become a massive issue. Even when Erdogan, as president, was coming back from the G8 summit in Bali, he questioned on the plane about what's happening with street dogs. This has become a big, big issue. So there was this big political fight going on that I was to a degree part of in Turkey. And then suddenly you had the earthquake. And what happened then, of course, is you had all the rescue teams come in with their dogs. Yes. And I think that's changed overnight attitudes in Turkey because they've saved hundreds of lives, but they've made people think about what an important role those dogs have brought about and millions mm-hmm. and millions of people have been discussing on social media huge amounts of media stories. And it, okay. it's been inspiring to watch those dogs do what they did and get the people out of those buildings. And I think it's made us all think to a degree, similar to a be about those dogs that went into 9 11 to the World Trade Center. Remember, if you go back oh, yes. to those yeah. days and to the ashes of the building, I think it does make us think about the importance of them. And the Mexican dog you mentioned, because he died, you know, that sent a sort of real shockwave down. Society in Turkey, and mm-hmm. they're like, you go to football matches, they have big of it. You know, people were saying,
0: um, yeah, when he
1: went back to Mexico, there was a whole you know, took the, the animal back, there was a, a ceremony and everything for him. And then the other start of the story has been post that immediate aftermath, we've been trying to rescue people. Now it's the rubble of the buildings, but there's been a lot of animals left in, in the buildings, a lot of cats have oh, yeah, been yeah, left in yeah. a But and what's yeah. happened is that people have wanted to get those animals out and reunite them with their owners. And there's been a massive amount of effort made to go into those buildings to get those animals out. So you've seen some of the dogs lifted out of the rubble. You've seen even helicopters that the media have paid for to drop people yes, down to get right. cats out. Now yeah. this is what it just turns on its head something we've been sort of campaigning about animals. So I I think with the elections coming from the June that could see Erdogan lose power, to be quite honest, because that would be the other aftermath of this earthquake. And I think that personally would be a, a very good thing. Um, and in polling in the last few months, you've seen that animal rights was one of the most important issues in Turkey. So we have, this is why I keep saying to you this is animals and human rights coming together in a country that has many social and economic problems at a very critical point in its history. Now you've got this tragic event that's killed nearly 50,000 people that also could become a turning point. And I think in a culmination of all of that will be that there'll be stronger animal rights laws, more respect for dogs and cats, and I hope a uh, recognition this type of brutal cruelty should not happen, and actually taints Turkish society and its image around the world. And I think the last few weeks has fundamentally shifted that debate, and we'll have to see how that goes.
0: Yes, yeah, I think I think that's coming through very much in what you're saying. But how these tragedies, in the end, there's an opportunity there somewhere. There is, too,
1: there is isn't there? yeah, yeah, and some of my, you know. Some of my tweets on this have had millions of people share them. I've shared a tweet of the Italian aid worker bringing a dog back on, on on a plane with me. because Turkish Airlines and others have allowed the aid workers to fly back first class with the dogs on the seats, which is great and it's what you should be seeing. Before. But I just shared that one image and I think it's shared about four million times. You know, and lots of well-known people in Turkey and the media and singers with millions of what we're all sharing it, and I think it does show this has really caught people's imagination in Turkey. But I think that's that's a sign that yeah, actually something has. about
0: that. Yeah, things are changing. And you did recently post a very very heartwarming video of uh, this young Turkish girl, and she was co- showing kindness and understanding to these animals. And I guess absolutely. that's absolutely, and that was posted before the other,
1: but It was an example again because I've mm. got lots of groups. You know, I've got thousands of followers in Turkey that send me material all the time. And then I see how we can use it, uh, and that was one of the pieces they sent me. But I, I think that is important. Because it's a cultural thing. There are certain people in the more religious communities within Turkey that have taken a, a less sympathetic view to street dogs. There are more secular people in the city of Ankara, Istanbul, and other places, Istanbul and places that have been much more, you know, inclined to treat animals the way we might consider them in Britain as companion animals and want to protect them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the yeah, government yeah. have played one off against the other. I think what the earthquake has done is actually hit a lot of people are particularly poor in Turkish society, many refugees from Syria and others, as you know, But I think also the animals have come to their aid. So actually, to be fair, some of the communities that probably were less inclined to be supportive of animal rights have suddenly seen what animals can do to help and protect them. And that could bring about that shift in a way that we might not have expected so quickly.
0: Absolutely. So, Dominic, you are an extremely busy person. Can I ask you, what is next
1: for you? Faroe Islands is one that I really want to do more work on because we had a petition last year about our trade agreement with the Faroes, which has grown massively in the last few years, uh, and about the need for us to use that to leverage the Faroese government to stop killing whales and dolphins, which has gone on for hundreds of years and continues to shock the world. And I really want to do more about that. So I've been talking about the Foreign Office, about making a trip to the island with the government's support, Looking at the opposition David Lamy and Shadow Foreign Secretary saying, would Labour take a step that the current government wouldn't do? Would you suspend the agreement? I think we are close to getting that type of agreement from a Labour government in waiting that could, I hope, end this monstrosity of killing that has gone on for so long. To me, that would be a, a lifetime achievement, but I do think we've got the leverage to do it. So that's something critically important to me that I want to work on. Um, I continue to to work on trophy hunting. We're in Birmingham yesterday talking about that. We've got you know this bill going, private members' bill going through Parliament to try and bring an end to the import of animal trophies. Terribly important wildlife crime and all the issues in the UK. Um, and also you know looking further afield and, and, and what we can do in different parts of the world. But you know to me it's about focusing in on these issues day in day out. Be it companion animals, be it wild animals, be it issues at like home or abroad continuing to engage with governments and businesses and young people and try and just drive attention to these issues to see if we can bring about change. It can be painfully slow. It can be very difficult. You can never give up and you have these little victories. It might be nows that it might be Ukrainian refugees and their animals. There are times when things come together and you can achieve something. And that's what I've learned through my work. And that's why I want to continue to, to work hard at it.
0: Well, thank you so much. You've had you've had so many victories in your lifetime and I know you're going to go on and have several more, but it's been a pleasure. Not at all. And thank you, you for all
1: your wonderful work, for podcasts and just being a vet and caring about animals. It really is important. And thank you for sharing these stories. I think we, it's really, really useful and it's been a pleasure to do it. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you.